The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I don't know about you, but about this time every year, I have to remind myself of what's really important in life. That yesterday or this weekend was the start of one of my favorite times of the year, college football. It's so exciting to get things going. But over the course of this week, I was reminded of really truly important things. I heard on the television set regularly talking of the commentators going to these stadiums all across the country and speaking of them as cathedrals, speaking of football as religion, speaking of these young men who go out on the field almost in idyllic and deistic terms. The hopes of entire communities rise and fall with a flag or a touchdown or a field goal wide right. And I realized something that I have to remind myself, like I've told you before, these are a bunch of 20-year-old young men that I don't know playing a game I never played at a university that I never attended. And it doesn't really matter. My team lost. They were robbed last night. Um, It's hard to play two teams at once, the Bulldogs and the refs. But we did our best. But I honestly went to bed agitated. Couldn't even make it through the first quarter of the other game that was on later that my household was up watching. And I tossed... Uh, in bed last night over and over going through this play or that play daydreaming in my head if I was six foot eight and 18 now and 290 pounds I could have made a difference in that game for my team and I tossed I didn't sleep well now this is going to turn not so funny I got a text this morning from a friend who said, Bill, pray for me. I didn't sleep well last night. I I tossed and turned all night. And Doug was writing me because his 21-year-old son, they had to turn off the machines on Friday. Because he had fallen to his death at a concert and a party in Atlanta. The end of a tumultuous few years that started with a simple beer his junior year in high school and then a little pot and then a little more of this and a little more of that and to where this beautiful young man is gone an only son an only child and I realized I have absolutely no reason to not have slept well last night it's a stupid football game and I need to make sure that I remember what's truly important in the world. What's truly important, hey, I hope my team wins, but if they don't, who cares at the end of the day? Because what's important is life, and that life lived in relationship to our Creator. And for us within the church, living through Jesus Christ in such a way that the world around us 
looks at our churches the way they might look at a stadium on a Saturday and say, there's a cathedral of something truly significant happening every single Sunday morning. That this group of people who drive in their cars, who get dressed up in their gear, and they come in and with such enthusiasm and abundance of life, they celebrate something that is transcendent from this world. Something that is so significant that if my team goes over or if they go undefeated, it doesn't matter because in this life, there's something greater than that. And there's a hope that's given to a parent who loses a loved one, a child, that says they hang on a hope that that profession that he made when he was a little boy supersedes his addiction. And that they'll see him again one day in heaven. They're clinging to that hope. And in the middle of it, in the middle of loss, there's something significantly different about Doug and Cindy because they sat there as I was with them on Tuesday and to the neurosurgeon, and he said, I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. And they said, well, we believe in the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross. And we know that even if he dies this week, that God has him in his hand. And we trust that doctor more than we trust you. That's an abundance of life. That's a thriving in the middle of catastrophe that comes out and a deep and a profound belief that says it's more than just meh. It's more than just, I'm going to get enough Jesus so I get to heaven, but not so much that it really affects the manner in which I live in this world. I don't want people to think I'm nutso. I don't want to be one of those fanatical weird people on the fringes. I just want to sort of stay gray and in the middle where I blend in and I make it to the end at the end of the day. Jesus, in this series that we're talking about with thriving, is saying this, I came to give you a life and that life of superabundance. I came to give you a life that is so significant and weighty and meaningful that it comes out of you naturally and that the people around you notice something. That it's more than just, eh. So how's your relationship with Jesus? Eh, eh. How's your marriage doing? How's your family? What's going on? What impact? If your neighbors, and all of you have neighbors, I suspect, and all of you have neighbors who aren't Christians, who aren't churched, who, who haven't believed in Christ to date. And they watch you every Sunday as they're walking their dog or, or working in their yard. And they see you get dressed up and they see you load the kids in the car with great peace and calm, I'm sure. <laughs> and you get headed out of the neighborhood and they look at you and they're asking the question, is Is there something that they have that I want? Is there something about this relationship that they claim to have with this Jesus Christ, this Creator God who made all things? Is there something in their lives, in their individual lives, in their families, in this church called Hilton Head Presbyterian? Is there something there that is so significant and meaningful that I'm willing to set aside everything else and pursue it with all-out gusto? They're looking and asking that question. How do you answer it? Is there something, is there anything in our lives enough for people to go, okay, I'm not necessarily willing to go today on it, but I'm willing to keep investigating it. Uh, I'm willing to keep asking questions. Is there something there? That's what we've been talking about with this series on thriving. Of saying that the gospel comes in and it gives us something so incredible. 
that it takes root in us. It transforms us from the inside out. And we face, by the way, the Christian faces all of the same things that the non-Christian faces. We just face it with a different worldview. We face death, we face cancer, we face loss, we face addiction, we face divorce, we face infertility, uh, we, we face all of these things that come along. We face all of the same things that are plaguing the world. We just face it with a hope in Jesus Christ that gives us something different to offer at the end of the day than simply hold on and hope for the best. I'm learning that just hoping isn't a really good strategy in life. I hope things are going to turn out better, but, well, I don't know. And so we've been looking at thriving as a person, thriving as a family, thriving as a church. And today, as we end this series, we're going to talk about what does it mean for uh, the community in which we live to thrive because of the presence of Jesus Christ, because of the presence of the gospel, because of the presence of the church. If if we've been talking about the concentric circles going out, uh, of saying that we want to see a thriving in our own personal lives, we want to also see a thriving in our families. Uh, we want to see a thriving in our relationships, in our singleness, in our marriages, uh, in our families with kids or without kids. We want to see that. Next concentric circle, the gathering of all of the saints together in the church. We want to see the church thriving. And then we want to see the community thriving. Well, the community's looking and going, how is it that we're going to thrive if we've got the church and families and individuals? And so we're going to look at that this morning. And we're going to look at three great passages of Scripture Jeremiah 29, the first nine verses, and then flipping over to Proverbs chapter 11 and Proverbs chapter 3. And as we do it, let's ask God uh, to bless our time together in his word. Father, we come and we acknowledge that this isn't our word, but it's yours. We don't stand above it, we stand under it. We kneel before it in reverence. We ask that you speak, that you would calm our hearts, and that we would see you that we would be challenged and convicted and encouraged and built up, and that we would go from this place knowing that the God of the universe spoke to us today, and we heard his voice in the thundering and in the still small whisper. Speak now, for your servants listen. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 9. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. To the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter had been sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, uh, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah. Uh, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And in Proverbs 
chapter 11, verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Or another way, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Or Proverbs 3, 27 and 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you today. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. So what are some of the key components? What are some of the key facets, the ideas that we need to hold on to as a church as we seek to be a blessing to our community around us so that it would thrive, that it would flourish, uh, that it would experience true uh, shalom that the Lord is giving? Well, the first thing that we're going to see, we're going to look at several, but the first thing we're going to see is we need to have an intentionality about us. We need to have a mission, an intentional mission about us to seek uh, the welfare of the city. It says there in verses 5, 6, and 7, to build houses, live in them, plant gardens, take wives for your sons and daughters, give uh, your sons and daughters uh, as wives, bear children, multiply there, and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare So this intentionality is that we're to seek the shalom, to seek the welfare of the community in which we live. Seeking, intentional, have a plan, have a strategy, have a a mindset that, that says we're going to do this. That we're seeking the shalom. This word shalom is that incredible uh, pregnant word within Scripture uh, that talks about a flourishing. If in the created order, God gave Adam and Eve a, a perfect integration. They were integrated as individuals. They knew themselves. There was a perfect integration within their lives, spiritually and emotionally. They were integrated perfectly with one another. They stood before one another without clothes and there was no shame They were perfectly integrated. They were perfectly integrated with with all of creation uh, when they were in the garden. They were perfectly integrated vertically in their relationship with God. But then the fall came, and there was the beginning of a disintegration, that their own lives were disintegrated. They experienced shame. They noticed uh, the imperfections of their, their lives. They noticed in their relationship that now there was a distance between them relationally. They began to break down. Society began to disintegrate. Murder was introduced into society. The breakdown of the very home and family and societal bonds and societal basis. That spiritually everything began to break down between them and God. There was a disintegration and a disintegration with even creation itself. For there was toil and labor now in the call that they had. What God is saying here is that what we're to pray for is for the reintroduction of shalom. That the church, and part of the role of the church within the culture, within our town, within our cities, within the places we live, is to bring back an integration. That what we're bringing is this reintegrating of individual self. Psychologically and emotionally, people are finding uh, now who they are because of the work of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the church. That families and relationships between individuals are being integrated back. It's a picture of weaving. That the tapestry which was being pulled apart is 
is being rewoven because of the ministry of the church within the society. That society and those polarizing differences of race and economics uh, and of education and of all the different things uh, that we come and we see them integrated beautifully together the way they were designed to be. That we see this happening. This shalom that comes is what we seek for the city. This thriving in welfare. But we have to be intentional with our actions. This just doesn't happen by chance. How many of you in the course of your life have been part of a building project with a house or some kind of building? Any of you? It's pretty cool. We've done that. It was awesome. We walked up to the lot where we were going to build the house and we prayed a lot. Man, we fasted. We prayed. Sought out for the Lord. And like we came back the next day and the trees were gone. It was awesome. And then we prayed some more and we fasted and we called on the Lord. And then two by fours showed up. And miraculously right in front of us they just came together. Nails went in. It was really cool. Electrical, plumbing, everything started to happen. And we just kept seeking the Lord and praying and going, God, you do your will. You have your will in me. You just, you're going to do what you're going to do, God. You're sovereign, and that's awesome. And we prayed, and it was really cool. And then all of a sudden, by the end of it, our house was just there. It was neat. Isn't that how it worked for y'all? <laughs> oh, you guys had to have blueprints and builders and architects and engineers. You had to have plans? Huh. Interesting. We use those plans in every other area of our life but in ministry and in the church. In the church, we all of a sudden become spiritual. Oh, we're just going to let go and let God. We're just going to let Jesus take over and we're going to pray for poverty and we're going to seek the Lord and we're going to just pray uh, there for poverty and pray against poverty and bind everything that we can bind and and we're going to do these things but we don't have a plan and we don't understand why we're ineffective that the house never gets built. What Jeremiah was saying, what the Lord was saying through Jeremiah was this. Be intentional in your planning. Have a plan of action. Think through it. He says this, here's your plan of action for you folks who are from Judah, from Jerusalem. This would have been Daniel, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those guys. Taken out of Judah, taken out of Jerusalem, living in Babylon, the the pagan country, the pagan city, that he displaced them there. He said this, here's your intentional plan. Don't just pray, build houses, and then live in them. Make gardens and grow things and eat the fruit of your garden. Have children and multiply. Live intentionally wherever you are. Don't just play the let go and let God card. You have to be intentional and have a plan to do it. It just doesn't happen by chance. We have to know the needs of our community. We need to know what Hilton Head and Bluffton need. You know the best way to do that? Go ask somebody. Build an intentional relationship with somebody in another part of our community who lives in a different place within our community and begin to ask them, 
Tell me about what community life is like for you. What are some of the things that you need within your community? What could help make your community flourish? And you may hear job training. You may hear education. You may hear food. You may hear financial peace. You may hear all kinds of things, tutoring after school, sports programs, some place for kids to go safely after, after school. Maybe you'd hear from teenagers in so many of these single-parent homes and impoverished homes within our community that, hey, I don't get to eat a meal unless the school provides it. And so I'm hungry at night and I don't get to eat on the weekends. It happens right here in Hilton Head and Bluffton. Did you know that? You'll, you'll find it right on the front of the Chamber of Commerce website. No, you'll never see it there. It doesn't sell well, but it happens right here. And so we have to be intentional to go out and to ask and to find out, to walk through these neighborhoods, to not be afraid in these things, to get involved, to diagnose the needs of our communities to diagnose them and learn how we can be intentional in bringing to bear the resources that God has given us here to help then bring shalom there to them. And in that way, interestingly enough, you say, oh, that's the greatest self-sacrifice that we can have. And it is great self-sacrifice. But interesting here, the Lord says this, by the way, know this, that your welfare is intrinsically tied to the welfare of the community in which you live. You may look... Hilton Head Presbyterian Church like you're thriving because you got new buildings, new parking lots, uh, you got lots of pretty people who come, everything looks really good, the finances are strong, you're thriving. But if the community around us isn't thriving, then we truly don't have a real thriving. We have something that looks like it, it resembles it, but it's fake. It's not real at its very heart. And what he says is this, when the community around you thrives, then you ultimately thrive. Then you ultimately are doing what you are called to do. And so we seek the welfare of the community. The first thing about thriving, we're intentional in it. We want to seek that shalom. The next thing we do is we pray. They knew we'd come to that, but we pray. He says, pray for the welfare of the city. Interesting, why do you think he says pray for the welfare of the city? He's saying this because it's not a man-made problem. It's at the very heart of it is a spiritual problem, and it's going to take the power of the Lord of the universe, the Lord of hosts is the name that he uses here, the Lord with all of the majesty, all of the power, all of the dominion, it's going to take this Lord to be mobilized on behalf of his name through the church into these communities. You can't do it on your own. That's what he's saying. You can't do it on your own. We think we can do it on our own. We don't pray much. We usually plan, get busy, and then ask God to bless what we're going to do. But God is saying this, pray. Pray for the community. Believe that God wants to prosper the communities in which we find ourselves living. That he wants to prosper Hilton Head. He wants to prosper uh, Bluffton. He wants to prosper if you're visiting here, wherever it is that you live and you're heading back to. That he wants to, through you and through the church, bring this shalom to those communities. But we have to pray. Because what we're saying is this, we are asking, like we talked about the vision last week, for something that is so substantial and so great that it is doomed and destined to fail if Christ doesn't show up. Are we willing to believe that here, that God has called this church to be here so significantly that it's having an impact on the community around us, that we would truly be missed if we closed our doors? So we have to be intentional. We have to be prayerful. And we have to be confident in what we're doing. Verses 4 and 7 of chapter 29. Interesting. 
He says in both of those, whom I have sent and to where I sent you. It's little statements, and he probably just blew right by them. But isn't it interesting that what that's saying is this. God is saying you can be absolutely confident that you are where I intended you to be in the season of life and for the time that you're intended to be there, and I plan on using you while you're there. Folks, I've had conversations a lot in the last couple of weeks about God's sovereignty, God's will, how does God control all things, how is he in charge of all things, yet man is responsible, man has his will, how does all that work out together? Here's what I'll say to you, I don't understand it all, but I know this, you're not here by chance. You made the decision to move to this area, you made the decision to buy the house where you bought the house, you made that decision, but it didn't surprise God. And what I would push back even harder is that more than that, he used your decision and actually guided you to make that decision to accomplish not your purposes, but his through you. And so with that, you know this, that means I've got something to do. That means for the time that I'm given here, in this place, that I'm to love this place and put down roots in this place, that Hilton Head just isn't a transient. You may, you may in your mind say, I'm only going to be there a few years. Well, great, then you've got three years here. You've got five years here. The people weren't going to be in Babylon forever. It was just a little while, a long little while, but still just a little while. And he said, but while you're there, while you're there, have this confidence. I sent you there. Because I wanted to do something significant in Babylon through you. Remember Babylon? Remember Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar? Really bad guy, evil pagan empire, didn't like Jews, couldn't stand them, destroyed them, all of that stuff, brought them there. Daniel, all those guys we're going to talk about a little bit more starting next week. But it wasn't a great place. And God was saying this, hey, you didn't end up here by chance. I had you here. That gives you such a peace at night and a confidence to go, I'm here. It validates your life. It validates your meaning. It gives you significance right now. Too many people ask, Bill, I don't know the plan for God, that God has for my life. I can give you some simple things. Here's a plan for your life. Glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and get busy making an impact in the community in which you're in right now. Right now. Not tomorrow, but now. Because he says this, be intentional, be prayerful, have this unbelievable confidence that the Lord has you and has you in His plan that Joseph could have heard these words from the Lord speaking to him of going, Joseph, you're not in Egypt by chance. Your brothers meant it for evil. I meant it for good, for I have a plan for you to prosper Egypt so that it can prosper my people. Now just trust me, Joseph. And he's saying that to you, insert your name. Just trust me. I've got you in this place with an intentionality, with a prayerfulness, with a confidence, and with a generosity. If we want to be a blessing and see our communities thriving, then it says this, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it to you when you have it with you. In the front of your bulletin, there's a couple of quotes, and I want to read them real quickly to you. One's from Tim Keller, and it speaks of this word righteous in verse 10. And that word is sedekim. It's a Hebrew word. And in the book of Proverbs, it says that there are by definition those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community 
while the wicked are those who put their own economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the needs of the community. What a word. He's saying those are the righteous ones. The righteous who bless the cities are the ones who are willing to put their own needs, wants, and desires behind the wants, needs, and desires of others. Amy Sherman, uh, who for a long time, I don't know if she's still uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, but she wrote a great book called Kingdom Calling. I'd encourage each of you to read it. You'll hate it. You will. It will stir you up, and you're going to be challenged, and you're going to go, ah. And she writes this, the flourishing of the righteous is a cause for rejoicing because the Sedekim view their prosperity not as a means of self-enrichment or self-aggrandizement, but rather as a vehicle for blessing others. Everyone benefits from their success. As the Sedekim prosper, they steward everything, their money, vocational position and expertise, assets, resources, opportunities, education, relationships, social position, entree and networks for the common good, for the advancing of God's justice and shalom. And when the people at the top act like this, the whole community cheers. When the righteous prosper, their prosperity makes life better for all. Isn't that incredible? Because what she's tapped into and what the writer of Jeremiah recorded because it was the very words of the Lord and the writer of Proverbs were recording was this, God has prospered us. And by the way, all of us living in this room are incredibly prosperous by world standards. We're the top percentiles. A study was done not too many years ago that asked people who were making $100,000 or more a year in annual income if it was enough, if they were satisfied. 98% said no. $100,000. $100,000. My dad never made over fifty in a faithful life of service. And we never wanted for anything. It was always fun to drive out of the driveway at church. And if we turned right, that meant I got a quarter and could get some baseball cards. The other was to drive home and hope there was food at the house. But we never wanted for anything. And now we live in a culture where we have so many things. Not just one comma, but some two. And we look around and God's saying, I've given you all of this. All of this to steward, not to hold. I've given it to you because you are now my stewards in this world of all of my wealth, of all of my giftedness, of all of my passion, of all of my voice. I'm stewarding it through you to the world around you. And I want you to do it in such a way that it causes the world around us to rejoice. And I want you to do and to use all of this, the ascetikim, the righteous, I want you to use these things for those who are around you, not for yourself and for your own kingdom building. That is such an affront to American capitalism and the American way of life. It just is. It's an affront to everything that we believe and have staked ourselves and our lives upon. But what he's saying is this. Are you willing? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to be so generous that it actually costs you something to give away to others? That's what he's asking. He's saying this to business owners. Don't wait for the government to tell you to pay more to your hourly workers. Take home less for yourself so that they can prosper more. The government shouldn't have to tell the Christian church to be generous. Capitalism isn't the end all, by the way. It's by the way, it's not biblical. Socialism is actually closer to biblical views on economic wealth. I hate to tell you that. Now you'll be leaving all those people who are like, well, I thought I was going to join the church. 
I'm not saying that we should become socialists, but I'm saying this. Jesus said they had all things and shared it in common. They saw a need and they gave to the need. Out of their poverty, they gave. They understood that wealth was given to them to be distributed to those through them who had need. They understood these things. And they would have understood, biblically speaking, capitalism was a way for me to make wealth so that I can be more effective in the mission of the church to go help people. Not so I can have a bigger 401k and give more money to the generations of kids I'll never know who will never really understand. You see, God's saying be generous. And then he says in Proverbs, be generous now. If you've got it, help now. Don't wait for tomorrow. Help now with that. And the result, we've got to move fast. The result of this intentional, prayerful, confident generosity is that the city rejoices. The city rejoices. That word for rejoicing is a word that's only used a couple of other places in all of Scripture. And it's not a, woohoo, I got a birthday present. It's not that kind of rejoicing. Yay, the tiger's won. Yay, the dog's won. It's not that kind of rejoicing. It's a rejoicing like VE Day. That there was a deep and a profound joy that said the enemy has been defeated. It was visceral. It came from the inside. And it was saying, I rejoice. It brings me a happiness and a gratitude and a movement in my spirit. And it's saying this. The rejoicing, as Amy Sherman wrote again, that the writer describes here is only used one other time. And it refers to the exaltation of a people who experience when they're delivered from oppression. It carries almost militaristic connotations. It is a soul-soaring exaltation. By this we realize that the righteous in their prospering must be making a remarkable positive difference in their community that must be stewarding their power, wealth, skills, and influence for the common good to bring about this noticeable, significant transformation. Otherwise, what would be prompting the residents of the community to go crazy with gladness and gratitude? Folks, it's more than giving away a $100 blouse to Goodwill and letting a poor person buy it for a dollar. That's not this word. That doesn't mean that they're rejoicing because of our prosperity. It's meaning this, that there's something so significant about Hilton Head Presbyterian Church and of you, the members of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, that our community rejoices because we exist and they would be heartbroken if we closed our doors. And I don't think they'd be heartbroken yet. So we've got some work to do. Would you agree? This is uncomfortable, isn't it? But we would all agree we've got work to do. That God's called us to do. So indeed, with all of this, it teaches us that the intentional stewardship of our time and talent and treasure, that the righteous bring nothing less than a foretaste of the kingdom of God into reality. We're going to run over a little bit today, so bear with me. Jeff White, the wonderful pastor in New York City in a church, because he believed these things to be true. And he started in Sandtown outside of Baltimore, uh, of going in there and of believing that a couple of white Presbyterians who believed in the sovereignty of God and the rejoicing that comes to a community through the presence of the righteous would go in. And all of a sudden, this area began to thrive and people began to come to faith. And the area was changed socially because of it. And Jeff White moved to Harlem and he went into Harlem and he began a ministry in Harlem before the regentrification of Harlem. And he started to see lives changed and communities because this guy believed in what we're talking about here to go in there. And he preached a great sermon and he said, Folks, we are the pink spoon. I wish I had thought ahead and gotten pink spoons. Have you ever gone to Baskin Robbins and gotten a pink spoon? You know what the pink spoon means? 
You remember? It's a taste. It's a foretaste of what's about to come. We are the pink spoon within our culture of where the righteous go with all of the resources of heaven brought to bear that we are that pink spoon to a culture that says this is a foretaste of heaven itself. This is it. This is the good news. And what we're about to experience at this table is a part of that foretaste. That Jesus Christ, who was wealthier than any of us, looked at our poverty and didn't say, pull up your bootstraps, boy, and get a job. He didn't look for the fault in me. He looked and said this, I come and I'm going to empty myself of all the grandeur of wealth of heaven and give it to you when you didn't deserve a bit of it so that you can begin to taste what you're going to get in the end. That's awesome, huh? Let's pray.